Good morning and Christian greetings to all of you. Grateful for your presence here this morning. Before uh, I get started here this morning, I just want to take this opportunity to express appreciation. And um, in particular this morning, and on behalf of the leadership team in particular, specifically, we want to take this opportunity to express appreciation to Wayne for his incredible contribution to the church over the last, I don't even know, I, I, 10 or 15 years, whatever it is. Um, while he has not been a part of our team per se, he has contributed in significant ways both behind the pulpit here as well as in other ways as well. And um, as I understand it, he indicated that his last sermon was two weeks ago. I missed that, unfortunately. I wish I could have been here for that. But uh, we are very open that if the Spirit leads, we are open to hearing from you again, uh, if so desired. But Wayne, if you would come up here, I have a little bit of a gift of appreciation here for you. Uh, that I would like to give to you just in recognition of your contribution to the church over the years. It is not compensation, but it is a gift, and I uh, hope that it can be a blessing to you. Thank you very much. Wayne has been one that has demonstrated well what we're going to be talking about this morning. And uh, I would like for you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14. <clears throat> now, I will say right up front, and as you take a look at this passage of Scripture, that this is not a chapter that I would choose to preach on if I was just uh, selectively choosing a passage of Scripture. However, preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians, it follows chapter 13. And uh, so I am going to be looking at chapter 14 uh, this morning. And as I've read and reread this, studying what Paul is instructing here and what he's teaching, I do believe that there is something we can learn from this chapter that is, is applicable to our lives today, even though circumstances are significantly different than what Paul was addressing there in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> For a bit of a recap, chapters 12, 13, and 14 are, uh, is a chunk uh, of, of this letter that is focusing on spiritual gifts and the local body. Um, Chapter 12 starts out by emphasizing that he wants the Corinthian believers to be well-informed and knowledgeable about spiritual gifts. He reminds them that the Holy Spirit itself is a supernatural gift that then supernaturally allocates appropriate and diverse gifts to believers. And then also that brings... Um, unity in diversity that would not be humanly possible, but when these diverse gifts 
within the believers work together, there can be unity. The second part of chapter 12 then emphasizes the fact and the reality that the local church is the body of Christ. We are united with Jesus Christ as our head. We need each other. What we do affects each other. We are the physical representation of Jesus Christ on this earth today. We are the body of Christ. And then he concludes chapter 12 with this verse, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a, a still more excellent way. And then the more excellent way is revealed in chapter 13, known as the love chapter, in the fact that agape love is supreme. Paul shows that agape love is of utmost value. Even the most gifted person without love is obnoxious and worthless. The characteristics of uh, love, agape love, that are described here in verses, well, in verses 4 through 7 are humanly impossible to achieve but require supernatural empowerment to do so. And then agape love also will not end in this life. It's going to endure forever. It's going to be perfected in eternity, which is why I believe he concludes that chapter, there's faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So chapter 14 now, he's getting into more of the personal or the instructive elements of it. Up to this point, he's been laying out the principles or the concepts or the important aspects of this, but he's wanting to address a specific issue. Apparently, the worship services in Corinth had the potential of getting quite chaotic. Uh, and that is not overtly stated, but I believe it can be inferred from what Paul says here in chapter 14. There were interruptions, there was people speaking at the same time, there were debates or arguments, numerous individuals were vying for their voice to be heard, and in generally, it was just a disorderly and chaotic worship service, if you can call it that. No one was really able to get anything out of the service, and it seems some of them were more interested in making sure that they were noticed rather than actually learning something. And remember back in chapter 11, when it was talking about their communion services, it seems like it's somewhat correlated to how their communion services were conducted in that their communion services had morphed into meals where the, the rich hoarded all the food and the poor were left without anything. And it, that also was a big mess. The theme of... 1 Corinthians overall and up to this point um, has been multiple times he's emphasized the idea of unity. We saw that in chapter 12 again. But he, he wants them to recognize and embrace the differences and diversity of this local body, finding ways that they can work together rather than allowing those differences to become barriers and causing con uh, division and conflict. And so while chapter 14 does not focus on unity as far as that word is not used in here, it is focused on being a healthy church. And a healthy church is one that is unified, that, ha that has unity. 
a church that builds up, a church that has a positive witness for the gospel and the kingdom of God. I've entitled this morning's message, Building Up the Body of Christ. <clears throat> this chapter is 40 verses long, and we're going to uh, work our way through here. Uh, rather than reading the entire text, I'm going to take it a paragraph at a time, and we will read it and, and uh, briefly look at what what the text says, and, and what Paul is teaching here. So beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. The one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Like I say, this is quite a transition here, and he is, throughout this chapter, is emphasizing the differences between prophecy and tongues, in specifically, but I want us to think in terms broader than that as well, and we'll think about some of that as we go along. But, um, but he had covered some of the principles that he wants them to think about previously, and now he's applying it to their specific situation. But he begins this chapter with those two words, pursue love. The King James would say, follow after charity. But he's reiterating, reinforcing what he had spent the whole chapter 13 on in outlining what agape love is and the importance of that, especially as he relates to spiritual gifts and the issues that he is about to address. So he begins this uh, this part of the letter with a focus on the gift of prophecy and, uh, and the gift of tongues. And, you know, I don't know, I'm not aware of anyone here that would say they have the gift of tongues, and I don't expect that there would be a rash of hands going up if we said, ask if you had the gift of prophecy. But, but they, they had somehow, they, that's what the focus was, and uh, the Corinthian believers had somehow convinced themselves that speaking in tongues was the most important gift, and in the course of their worship service, everyone was trying to prove to the others that they had this gift. Um, now that is reading a bit between the lines here, but as we read through this entire chapter, that is the essence of what he's saying. So what do we mean by tongues and prophecy as gifts, and, and what, what were they? Tongues was the supernatural ability to speak in a language that was unknown to others, and perhaps even to oneself. Now just think about that. The ability to speak in a language that others don't understand but that I may not even know what I'm saying. Now, while there are believed to have been similar pagan practices 
nowhere in this chapter does Paul indicate what he's addressing as related to that at all. So, I mean, Paul does not condemn the speaking in tongues. Um, but, he, but he does... Uh, he does address it and, and show that it's not the greatest gift. Some have inferred that these tongues or languages may have been angelic languages rather than human languages. That's taken from the first verse of Corinthians 13 where Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, it's nothing. Now, we don't know specifically what languages he was talking to, but he is referring to languages of some kind when he, when he says tongues. Prophecy, most of us probably tend to think of the gift of prophecy or what prophecy is in terms of, in light of the Old Testament prophets who predicted future events. But what we often forget is that just as much or maybe probably more of their ministry was, and their message was geared toward proclaiming truth for the present. And, and so while there was a uh, futuristic element to some of their, uh, their, their, their declarations, it was not overwhelming. The context given here in 1 Corinthians 14 is that the central emphasis of prophecy is that of God-given wisdom and understanding and insight and teaching for the benefit of the church. Verse 4 gives a little bit of definition to that as well, where it says someone who speaks to people for their upbuilding, for their encouragement, for their consolation or admonition. Um, and so... That is the idea of what prophecy is. So he's contrasting this supernatural gift of languages to that of teaching, understanding, insight, and uh, encouragement to the church. Now, one of the unique characteristics of the speaking in tongues that's described in this chapter is we see it in verse 2, is that it is directed to God, not to other people, not to man. Later on in the chapter, we'll see that it's described as prayer or worship to God. Verse 2 states that no one understands the tongues except God. And that is one distinction, as I understand it, from what the modern practice of speaking in tongues, what's often referred to, is that this, in speaking in tongues today, generally, when interpreted, are often instructive to others. It's not purely a form of worship and communion to God. Verse 4, I believe, is the central thrust and theme of this entire chapter and what Paul is wanting to communicate to the Corinthians church, and he does it over and over again from various different angles. The one who speaks in tongues builds himself up. The one who prophesies builds up the church. So individualism 
was an issue of concern way back here for Paul in the church within the church of Corinth. And it remains a concern for the church in America today. Why is it that we, why do we do what we do? Do we do it for ourselves and what we benefit from it? Or do we do it for the benefit of others in the church? What is our spiritual gift? Do we use it to advance our own ambitions and our own desires? Or do we invest that in others, in the building up of others within the church? So this applies to all gifts. This is not isolated to prophecy and tongues. That's what Paul is emphasizing here. This applies broadly. Paul is simply stating that speaking in tongues does not usually benefit anyone except the person that does it. And as a result, it would be better if they would spend that time, spend the time on work that others can benefit from rather than just yourself. An analogy that I thought of, and this is far from perfect, but imagine a builder that invests all his spare time in improving his own personal house. And he has incorporated the latest improvements in design and decorating technology, and he has an impressive place. And compare that to a builder who, in his spare time, invests that time in building a splendid structure in a public square with dozens of other builders. And they're all working together to build this majestic cathedral. One setting pillars, another sorting stones for an intricate mosaic, another doing woodwork on massive doors. They're building a cathedral, a place of worship, a, with an invitation for everyone to come gladly into Christ, God's presence and to have a relationship there. That's the kind of contrast that we see here, what Paul is making in verse 4, is that the difference between simply doing, using your gift that you personally benefit from versus investing it in something that others can benefit from as well. Are we taking action for our own benefit, or are we taking action in ways that is investing and building up those around us rather than ourselves? I will say right up front, this is not a natural way to act. We want to derive a benefit for ourselves when we do something, yet God calls us to lay that aside and focus on how we can benefit others. In verse 5, Paul validates the gift of tongues, but he also reemphasizes that prophecy brings greater benefit to the church by building it up. Verse 6, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as a flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? 
So with yourselves, if your tongue, if with your tongue your utter speech that is intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning, but if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and a speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. If I were to pick up a musical instrument and a flute, a harp, a bugle, and attempt to play them, I could make noise, but it would not be a recognizable tune. I guarantee that. And that's a little bit what he's giving here as a picture here of, of these different languages. We can hear the noise, but it doesn't mean anything to us if we don't know the language. We don't know what's being communicated. While we were in Costa Rica, we uh, attended two different churches while we were there, both of them entirely in Spanish, except for the second one I preached uh, in English and it was translated into Spanish. We could understand some words here and there, but really had little sense of what was being said through the entire service. And as a result of that, I certainly have a deeper appreciation and feel for those whose first language is something other than English. Uh, I think of Wilson back here. Uh, I, hats off to you. Uh, but, you know, when we don't know the language, it really is little more than gibberish to us. I mean, it's noise, it sounds, but it really does nothing for us. And, and that's what Paul is, is communicating here, that it's not that they're meaningless because they're, they are a language. However, if it's not understood, it's just like making noise and, um, and it's like speaking to the air, he says. And since the Corinthian believers were so concerned about seeing the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, Paul instructs them, rather than focusing on the tongues, strive to build, to excel in building up the church. Again, focusing on what others, how we can help others, and don't just think about yourself and how I could be recognized for something that I'm doing. Verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays and my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a, with a tongue, in a tongue. <clears throat> so 
here Paul is now bringing out a bit that he specifically mentions praying, singing, and thanksgiving as what is being done in another tongue. These are all spoken to God and for God. But if a person that is speaking a tongue that they don't even know, they are praying, like he says in verse 14, but their mind is not engaged because they don't even know what they're saying. If, if I'm speaking in a language I don't even know, my mind can't even follow what is being communicated. And that seems foreign to us, but that's what Paul is, is saying here. And this highlights the value and the importance of interpretation and understanding so that we know what is being spoken. Without an interpretation, we can't even say amen. And by amen, it means I am in agreement with what has been said. If you don't understand what has been said, you can't even say, sure, I agree with that. We may be giving thanks, we may be praying, but others aren't really being built up. And then Paul makes a statement here that is, is really interesting. I don't think he's bragging, but I think he's making a statement that he speaks in tongues more than all of them. And that clearly he has this gift, but he doesn't uh, abuse it, doesn't uh, misuse it. And it would seem that perhaps maybe he doesn't use it in worship services. And I pick that up from the way that he um, says in verse 18, nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words that are understood than 10,000 in another tongue. Because those five words, which take maybe three seconds to say, would enable him to help someone else with those five words versus standing here for an hour or more speaking words that none of you understood. Those five words at least have a chance to help somebody. Continuing in verse 20. <clears throat> Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So here he's appealing to them 
by starting out basically saying, act like adults, act mature, act, don't act like children. Um, grow up, think about this in a mature way. But he clarifies another aspect of tongues here, that tongues may be a sign, uh, a spiritual sign, a positive manifestation of a spiritual gift for believers, but it is not an evangelistic tool. It's not useful for believers. In fact, it does just the opposite. When unbelievers hear speaking in tongues, they view you as being crazy, being out of your minds. That's what they think when they see you. Remember in Acts 2, people saying, are they drunk with wine? That's the impression that it leaves when unbelievers hear the speaking in tongues. And so that is another reason Paul gives why a church gathering should not be focused on speaking in tongues. But if you're prophesying, if there's teaching, if there's edification, if there's uh, useful information being shared, knowledge, it, that's going to lead unbelievers to understanding. It's going to lead them to knowledge and conviction and ultimately, hopefully, to surrender to Christ because he understands what is being said. The last part of this chapter then, Paul shifts again a bit and gives some very specific worship guidelines and instructions to the Corinthian believers. Verse 26, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or th at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And we'll stop there for now. So, Paul has been laying out and contrasting the benefits, the pros and cons of, of the benefits of speaking in tongues versus prophecy. But now he brings it right back to their worship services. When you come together, when you worship, um, it really would have been interesting to attend one of their worship services to know more specifically what Paul is specifically addressing here. It seems to me from reading this that their worship services were quite spontaneous, I think would have been the way to describe it. I think that literally it went from one thing to the next really without much. Each one has a song, a lesson, a tongue, a revelation. If literal, 
each one, if each of you had something to say this morning of something, to, there could be long services, especially if you were in the mode of trying to impress those that were present of your, of your wisdom and so forth. Um, but but there, was, there was a lot of, a lot of spontaneous activity, and, and you can kind of, again, reading where it says each in turn or one at a time, that, there probably, that probably wasn't just happening organically. There was, there was a challenge with that. There was interruptions. There was people not waiting on each other and so forth. But Paul reiterates twice in this, let all things be done for the building up. Uh, well, and then later on it says, so that all may be encouraged and all may learn. <clears throat> but first of all, he addresses those speaking in tongues. So he's not forbidding speaking in tongues in church service. But he says, if someone does speak in a tongue, there's three requirements that you're to follow. One, there should only be two or at most three in a worship service that do that. Secondly, take turns. And thirdly, somebody must inter interpret. And then the caveat is that if there isn't an interpreter, you're to, nobody's to speak in tongues. People are to keep silent in church and simply speak to yourself and to God. That alone sounds like it was probably a pretty radical shift to what had been happening in the Corinthian church, that Paul is instructing them that they should do. And then he says that there ought to be two or three prophets that do speak. And um, those who listen have the responsibility to weigh or to consider what is being said. Now, we have to understand, at this time in the Corinthian church, they did not have scriptures, uh, the New Testament, the way that we do. And so there, there really had to be more a reliance on the Holy Spirit to discern what is true and what isn't, or what is accurate, right and what isn't. The other thing that, uh, uh, one thing that they, the prophets or the, were to be respectful and to take turns prophesying one by one, prophesying one by one. It sounds like if somebody was speaking and somebody else felt the urge to speak, that first person should simply sit down and let the other person speak. Um, now, that seems a little bit foreign to us as well, and the idea of two or three prophets uh, speaking in a worship service. But as I thought about it, that's what we typically do here on a Sunday morning, if you think about it. And uh, we have a devotional. We have Sunday school teacher, and we have a sermon. Those are all aspects of what is described as being a prophet, of prophecy. Prophecy isn't limited to ordained leaders. The purpose is, again, is that all are built up, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And God is a God of order and peace, not chaos and confusion. Continuing in the middle of verse 33, And in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, 
but should be in submission, as the law says, also says. If there is anything that they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Verses 34 and 35 in here, where it talks about the women, seems out of context from the rest of the chapter. And it really kind of interrupts the flow because verse 36 references back to verse 32 again, or 33, beginning of 33. And it, it feels out of place here. Um, other than the fact it is talking about women in worship services, which does apply to the chapter as a whole. Many commentators would say that they assume that this was added later. And, um, and I can understand why I don't take that position. Um, it's here. Uh, what does it mean? At first glance, I would say that it also seems to contradict what Paul wrote in chapter 11 of this same letter. In verses 4 and 5 of chapter 11, he says, Every man praying and prophesying, having his head uncovered, dishonoreth his head. And then verse 5, But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head, for that is even all one as she were shaven. So chapter 11 makes it clear that women clearly were praying and prophesying in this context, in the Corinthian church. And it was um, endorsed. It was, there was instruction given in relation to it in chapter 11. So it seems like Paul is addressing a specific type of behavior here that is disruptive to worship services. In addition, it would seem that these verses are directed specifically at married women who were making a scene in public worship that was shameful. Um, I'm not sure. There's, there's a lot about these verses I can't quite wrap my mind about, around, but we do know that throughout the New Testament, there are numerous influential women mentioned in churches, women who had significant roles and impact on the early church in positive ways. Given the, the context overall, it seems that Paul is warning the Corinthian church here about women who disrupt worship services with dissension and arguing. Silence in worship services by women who initiate and dominate public debate is the appropriate action to take. Uh, it's better to be silent. Heated discussions don't have place in public worship services, but rather should be discussed in another setting. 
Now, I don't, I mean, I, this is a passage of Scripture I am not 100% clear on, but when I think about it in context of other passages and what is stated, that's what it seems like to me. In other places in Scripture, women are instructed to teach other women. And I believe that it is appropriate for Sunday school classes uh, for women as well as for children, for women to instruct others. When it comes to church leadership, the qualifications of elders, bishops, and deacons is clear. It is to be men. And the same is true for teaching in mixed adult settings. When it comes to testimonies of God's work in the lives of believers, I believe it's appropriate for both men and women to share as long as it is not disruptive to the worship service. Now, I realize there's probably some varying thoughts on what this, these two verses exactly mean, but as I study, studied this in context with the chapter as a whole, as well as what other scriptures teach about women in the church, it seems to be a, a rather targeted focus here uh, that he's referring to here. Paul then wraps up this chapter by calling the Corinthian believers for an earnestness in desiring spiritual gifts, I mean, in desiring prophecy, because it is the one that builds up the church. And, and he's also re reinforcing that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. He is establishing the validity. This is not some optional uh, instructions that he's given, but this is, this is from the Lord. But I find it interesting. So he wraps this chapter up by desire, earnestly desire to prophesy. In verse 1 of this chapter, he had started out, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. It's a more general. Chapter 12 Verse 31, he concluded that chapter by saying, desire the higher gifts. And it feels like he's, he's kind of been leading them along here that, you know, earnestly desire gifts. Says it again, but then at the conclusion of it all, he says, earnestly desire prophecy above everything else. So in conclusion, what is it that Paul was concerned about when it came to these spiritual gifts and tongues specifically? What should we be concerned about? Do we share those reasons for concerns? Here is, here is a question that I think summarizes what Paul is emphasizing in this chapter. How are my actions edifying or building up others in the church? As I reflect on these three chapters related to spiritual gifts, this is a recurring point that Paul makes. Ten times in this chapter, he mentions the importance of building up others, helping others, instructing others. And while it's not in so many words, in many ways this concept is being woven throughout the entire book. It builds unity. It diminishes dissension. It creates respect and love for others. It's how a church thrives and becomes what God desires when we focus on building up others in the church. So what would happen if that question were central in each of our lives? 
let's prayerfully consider this as we live our day-to-day lives. How are my actions edifying or building up my brothers and sisters at Faith Christian Fellowship? Let's stand together for prayer. Father, thank you so much for this passage of Scripture and the lessons that we can glean from that. I pray, Lord, as we go from here, that you would give us a heart to be aware of how we are edifying and building up others around us. Or remind us if we are not. And uh, I just pray that we could be a church that would demonstrate this this love and care for others in healthy ways, and that we could be a vibrant church in your kingdom here and now. Dismiss us with your blessing. Guide us throughout this week. Bless us. As well as each one that is not able to be here this morning, I pray that you would just bless them uh, this morning as well. Guide and direct us for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.